0: Hey, uh, it's so good that we get to be here as the Church of Christ. I mean, the, when, we, when you look around here, there are people from many different places, many different churches, denominations, and many different ethnicities, backgrounds. And we all get to call Jesus Lord, right? And we get to stand here today and worship because Jesus did something that was successful, right? It wasn't an attempt. Can you say it wasn't an attempt, Jesus did it all. Amen. So I want to start off uh, over here by just saying this. What we are working with here, it's a, it's a red-letter day, right? We're, ta- we're dealing with all the sayings of Jesus here. But that does not mean that all of the other black text isn't relevant, right? It means that this is the Word of God, so I treat it as such. So every single word in that book, if you've got your Bible with you, is important for instruction for your life. Amen? So the, so the saying that I'm working with today is taken from Luke 23, 34. Now Jesus says over there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus immediately steps into that role of being the mediator, that word that we just heard a little while ago. <clears throat> Jesus being our mediator. But before he does any of that, he calls out to his Father. And that is the most important relationship that Jesus came to establish. He came to establish not the one of just being your Savior, but the one of reconciling you to God, our Father. He says, I'm going to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. So that relationship was very crucial in all of the things that he said on the cross and even before the cross was was all about reconciling a people who were far off to a holy God. You and I had no way of being reconciled to God. No way at all. And God says, I will pull you close. Into what sort of a relationship? into one where a holy God looks, looks at you and says, well, I'll see how long you'll last. I'll see how long you can do the good stuff. No, it was something that Jesus had to pay that you could be brought into a relationship with a father. A good one, not a bad father, a good father. And as I was preparing, I felt the Lord was really asking me to focus on this one issue here. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A lot of the people gathered there who were mocking him, who had betrayed him, the people who crucified him, the people who spat at him. All of these people had a part to play in crucifying the king of glory. It's on their heads. And he takes this moment to just say, Father. Forgive them. He had the power to take up his power at any time and issue judgment. Mercy was not on the table for any of these guys. But in that moment, he says, Father, forgive them. And this is to fulfill scripture. If you have your Bible, could you turn to Isaiah 53? What Jesus is doing there wasn't just an empty moment where he was saying something cute. He was saying something quite important. He said, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Isaiah 53, I would urge you in your own time while you're meditating during this weekend, but also at any other time when you consider the work of the cross, Isaiah chapter 50, all the way through 56, needs to be part of your DNA. It needs to be part of your language and understanding of what Jesus did. Therefore, it says in verse 12, "I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, is poured, out, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors this is an important word jesus takes the role of intercessor here for the ones who have committed the transgression if there is one thing that i want you to do the one word from this little verse here that i want to focus on today is the word intercessor jesus steps in with a better covenant with god and he says i will intercede for them i will take their place That's what intercede means. Not to just pray. I mean, how many of you have heard the word intercede before? Right? And it's usually in the context of praying for somebody else. Correct? But to intercede is not just to pray for someone else, but it is to pray as someone else. You're literally taking the place off before God. And God, through Jesus, is saying, I will take your place of judgment I will intercede on behalf of the transgressor so you don't have to pay the penalty anymore so when we are saying and we sing with boldness clothed in his righteousness alone I faultless stand before the throne where do we get off thinking we can sing something like that it's because we have an intercessor can you say I have an intercessor Hebrews 7, in verse 24, it says, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Not like the priests of the past. He doesn't die, so he is living forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sin. Separated from from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That is your intercessor. That is my intercessor. So I would encourage you today to come under the work of this intercessor. If you are here just trying Jesus out, you can't try him out. You either believe that he is the one who's taking your place or not. If not, you're taking your place and the full penalty for the sin that you have committed that i have committed lies upon us but jesus says i have come to take away the sin of the world once for all amen
1: good evening good evening our first prayer was answered i made it up the steps without tripping <laughs> amen it's so good to be here today and take part in this celebration and uh They give us only seven minutes, you know, seven robust preachers, and we got to keep it all in seven minutes. I think that's a bigger miracle than raising Jesus from the dead. (laughs) Anyway, my scriptural lesson, and forgive me for reading because I'm a better reader than I'm a preacher. Uh, St. John 19, I'm just going to read a little bit, 25 to 27. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the mother, the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. I just want to use for a thought. I want to sum it up in these words. You're in good hands. You're in good hands. Now, in times past, I must admit that I used to be put off by the way Jesus verbally addressed his mother as woman during the few few times that the scriptures recorded their interaction. Now, reading that term woman through the lens of a 21st century Western civilization mindset, I had wondered why Jesus addressed her in such a disconnected manner, in such a way that it appeared that he had no family ties to her or even maternal affections for her. You know, and the, one example was at the uh, wedding at Cana when... Uh, Buster ran out of wine, and so uh, Jesus' uh, mother came to say, and said, all out of wine. He said, woman, what does that have to do with me? You know, I said, wow, that's kind of like a, a, a rude way to talk to your mother. Amen. And I found out though, that term woman in the Greek, gane, is actually a term of great respect for a female of that biblical time and that culture. And Jesus did have great respect and admiration for his mother, amen, for this woman who in faith and humility had yielded her body to the will of God and became the channel by which he entered into this world as a human, amen. If Jesus had 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 one ounce of disrespect for his mother, he could not have qualified as a perfect savior because he had to keep all of the commandments of God perfectly. And right up there is honor your father and your mother. So when Jesus addressed Mary as woman, he was not being disrespectful to her. But let's go now to Calvary. Jesus is hanging up there on the cross, and he does a very unselfish thing. He looks down in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his agony, and he sees his mother, his precious mother, standing at the foot of the cross. And she, her heart is breaking, and I don't think she's aware of what's going on. And I don't think anybody really aware, was aware of what was going on. She might have been even been praying for God to work a miracle to release her son. But So she's there brokenhearted, and he sees John, his beloved disciple, the one that John said Jesus loved. And Jan, John was the one who wrote it. The disciple. He said, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's there. Out of all the disciples, he's there. And his mother, so Jesus does a very unselfish thing. He looks at the mother, looks at his mother and says, Woman, behold your son. Now, when I read that years ago, I thought Jesus was referring to himself. I was thought he was saying, you know, woman, look at me. Now she was already looking at him, but see, I never realized that. I just thought that he was saying, Hey, look. Feel sorry for me but actually he was saying woman look at John John is your adopted son John son behold your mother amen and the Bible says from that time on John literally adopted her and took her home and became family to her I'm almost done now and, and I thought about it, and wait a minute. Now, Mary had other kids, amen? She had children the name of James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, had a daughter, Salome. And uh, her husband at this time, we believe, most theologians believe that Joseph had died. So Jesus, uh, knowing that he's going to leave, he gives her over into the care, and I say loving care, of his most trusted disciple, amen, John. Now, why did he do that when it would seem like if, he, if she had other children, why would he not just assume that they would take care of her? Well, they could have taken care of her, but they would not have been the best, amen. John was the best for his mother. And so his mother's there at the foot of the cross, brokenhearted. Hallelujah. Hmm. Hmm. I feel my health coming here. And, and the, the antidote to a broken heart would have been him coming off the cross and appearing to say, hey, I'm, it's all right. It's all right, mom. But no, he didn't come down to the cross to alleviate her grief. What he did was he gave her into the hands of a trusted disciple somebody who was a believer because Jesus' natural siblings weren't believing on him. And so, said, so Jesus says, woman, because you had taken care of me, because you raised me in a godly way, because you were there for me, you ministered to me, he said, I'm not going to leave you brokenhearted i'm not coming down from the cross because there's a price that i have to pay but i'm going to alleviate your suffering by giving you into good hands glory be to god and so in jesus's estimation amen family is not just blood ties but family are people who are united amen by their faith in the lord jesus christ And God says, amen, who is my mother? Who is my brethren? They that hear the will of God, hear the word of God, and do it. And so I'm saying to you that if you are a Christian, if you, hallelujah, hallelujah, help me to bring this clear, Lord. If you are a Christian, and if you are in right relationship with your church, uh, you are in good hands. So come on and say Hallelujah. Come on, say praise him. I know you don't believe that, but Jesus, amen, in the times of your trouble, amen, Jesus is not physically going to come down from heaven to take care of you, but he has given you into a family of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and I'm not ashamed to tell you that I'm one of them. Amen. (laughs) Tim, come on up here. I'm done.
2: Peace to you. Uh, our, our next word is, as you can see from uh, the Gospel of Luke, and uh, if you would turn in your copy of the Scriptures with me to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to read a little bit beyond the word itself and uh, some of the context. So begin with me at verse 39, Luke 23, 39. Now one of the evildoers, having been hanged, was blaspheming him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But having answered, the other was rebuking him, saying, You aren't even fearing God because you are in the same judgment? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving back worthy of that which we practiced. But this man practiced nothing evil. And he was saying to Jesus, Remember me, Lord, when you should come in your kingdom. And this is our word. And Jesus said to him, amen I am saying to you, Today you will be with me in the paradise. This is a terribly precious and powerful word that the Lord Jesus Christ said to this man and through him to all of us. Uh, Let's first deal with truly with Jesus in paradise. Where is this? that Jesus would be with on with this man on that very day. Well, Jesus soul upon his death went to a place called Sheol in the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew way of saying it. In the New, it's called Hades. We see it in Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 and then that reference is quoted by Peter on Pentecost when he is preaching the resurrection of the Lord Jesus for the first time in Acts 2:24 through 28. Uh, there it speaks about how the in, in persona Christi, if you would, the uh, writer David is uh, speaking as the Christ. And he says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or Hades. It was the place where all departed dead went. Maybe we think of it without maybe uh, reading it uh, so thoughtfully and think that he meant that the man went to heaven. But in John chapter 20 and verse 17 after the resurrection, even on that morning of the resurrection when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene, he said that late, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. This is the, he descended into hell of the, uh, of the creeds. I think that hell is a, is a poor way of translating what in the Greek was its original Hades, because it makes it sound like Jesus went and was punished or was burning in hell rather in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31 we have the Lord relating uh, the incident of Lazarus and the rich man and there we see that there were two compartments to Sheol or Hades one was indeed and is that torment of hell But the other was there called Abraham's bosom. And it was the paradise that Jesus as a righteous human being would go to as would this now imputed righteous man who was dying with him. And if we would borrow the language of the penman, of the book of Hebrews concerning which things now isn't the time to be speaking in detail. But then let's look at this one, and this is the, this is the, this is the precious thing about what the Lord Jesus Christ says upon this man's request. We see here the content and the terms of the gospel the content that is we see the stuff that makes up the gospel what is the gospel of jesus christ and we see the terms and by that i mean what is the appropriate human response to that information that we have in the gospel note what the man said you know examine his words to see that content in terms of this gospel the man said to the Lord Jesus Christ as he was dying, remember me, Lord. Now, this word Lord, Kyrios, in Greek, it was the word that was chosen not really to translate, but to take the place of the divine name in Hebrew, the name for God, Yahweh, in the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And from that time on, this was a title for God as if it were his name. So the man recognizes that the one he said, this man practiced nothing evil. So he knows that this is a man who is dying next to him. But he recognizes by the illumination of the Father that this man is Yahweh God. Lord, remember me, when? And then with the word when, we've got, uh, this idea of sometime, uh, short or long, but sometime in the future when you come into your kingdom. Now he's recognizing the Lord Jesus is the Messiah. First and foremost, the Messiah is a king because of the ritual anointing ceremony that inaugurated a new king in Israel. Anointing that ultimate future king who had been predicted in the pages of the Hebrew scriptures was called the anointed. He recognizes that the Lord Jesus has a kingdom when and then. When you come into your kingdom, remember me, but the man is dying next to him. He believes. That the Lord Jesus Christ will rise. From the dead. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is God who became a man, the Messiah who died and rose again from the dead. Amen. Good evening.
3: I have the privilege of breaking down Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46 with you this evening. So I'm going to read. I hope you follow along. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lema, sabachnai,' that is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? What an astonishing thing it is to attempt to imagine the scene that is before us all in this moment. Can you picture it? Try to, if not. It's noon, right? It's noon, and Jesus, beaten, bloodied, has had his skin ripped off his back by a cat of nine tails, has been on the cross for three agonizing hours in this moment, and then all of a sudden it says, darkness falls. Darkness falls over all the land. And at the point of the day when the sun is at its highest and its brightest point, darkness falls. This is not by accident. This darkness is a symbol of God's judgment upon sin. There's something profound happening here, if you can see it. The physical darkness is revealing a much deeper and more terrifying darkness, which is the wrath of God being poured out upon sin on his Son. And at the ninth hour, so three more hours pass, Jesus cries with a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These horrific words are a direct quote from Psalm 22. And and the question I want to ask is, why did Jesus say these words in this moment right now? Yes, he's fulfilling scripture. But I don't think that's what's on his mind. Scripture's in his heart, and it's coming out of his mouth. But what's happening is, Jesus is really, truly being forsaken in this moment. That's what's happening. Jesus did not just kind of feel forsaken. It's a real thing. He was forsaken. His disciples have abandoned him. Everyone has abandoned him. And now in his greatest hour of need comes a pain unlike any other that he has never felt in his entire life. And he's experiencing God, the Father's abandonment. And there he is. Picture him. Can you see him? He's there. He's alone. He's deserted. He's forsaken in complete and utter darkness. Why? It has to be your next question. Why would God the Father forsake His Son in His greatest hour of need? That's the question. Simply put, it's because in this moment, Jesus, the beloved Son, was made to be the most vile object of God's wrath ever when Jesus was made sin for us. Our sin was laid on the sinless man named Christ. This is the darkest moment of all time. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, Oh, I pray you hear this. For our sake, God the Father made Him, Jesus the man, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus, listen, in this moment, He became the worst of what you and I are. He became the liar He became the thief. He became the drug addict, the drug dealer. He became the rapist. He became the murderer. He became the adulterer. He became the addict. He became the idol worshiper. He became the self-righteous person in here that thinks they don't need a Savior. He became all those things in that moment. This is why Jesus became the most heinous and vile of beings as he was literally being cursed on the tree before God. Can you see him? Why? Oh, why? That's your next question if you're thinking. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 continues. So that. Here's why. Why did that happen? Here's why. That in him, in Christ, in Jesus, we, sinners, vile, wretched, Disgusting people might become the righteousness of God. That we might have God impute our sins upon Christ who knew no sin. And and in that moment, those who believe by faith that God would impute His perfect righteousness to us who have no righteousness of our own. It is not our righteousness that we get. We get God's righteousness. We get Jesus' perfect life. His perfect obedience is credited to us. It's given to us as a big gift. And it's to be received with joy. It's to be received with joy and thanksgiving. Do you see? Jesus willingly became an enemy of God. So that enemies like you and I can become beloved children. It's a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery. And now, all who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Father looks at you with the same love that he looks upon his Son, whom he delights in. There's no admixture of wrath for any believer in Christ. There is only love and delight and grace and acceptance because of what Christ has done. Do you rest in that? Do you rest in that? Jesus was willing to be forsaken by God the Father for the joy that was set before him so that rebels like you and I, you and I who willingly have forsaken God for the craziest things in creation, but we've abandoned God for the smallest of things, thinking that it would somehow bring us joy. We go to the toilet hoping that it will somehow quench our thirst. And it doesn't ever do what it's intended to do. We forsaken God. Jesus chose to be forsaken by God. He received that plan from the Father willingly with joy so that we could be brought near to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and have infinite joy in Christ. Oh, what an amazing Savior we have.
4: This evening, I read to you from John chapter 19, verse 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Jesus, the source of living water, said, I thirst. As I was given this subject, I thought, boy, that's gonna be easy. And as I studied it, and as I pondered it, and as I looked through the scriptures, I understand that sometimes the Scriptures are very clear and very dogmatic about what it wants to say, and in those verses we saw the who, the what, and the why, and it was to fulfill the Scriptures, and as you look at this thirst, the physical thirst was nothing compared to that spiritual thirst that he lost because of the wrath of our sin. That thirst was that communion and fellowship with the Father that He never had broken since the very foundations of the world in eternity past. He couldn't have that relationship with the Father. And if in the presence of the Father is fullness of joy, the absence of the presence of the Father is misery. And Jesus thirsted beyond a physical thirst. And I'm not underestimating the fact that He was physically thirsty but that wouldn't have satisfied much for long because he had accomplished everything. It says in those verses, now that everything had been accomplished, he finished the Father's will. And after he, you'll hear the next phrases, when he finished this, he soon said, it is finished. And he took care of the work at Calvary. As I look at this thirst, I thought of three things, the irony, the agony, and the opportunity. The irony of this thirst quencher jesus of nazareth who met the woman in samaria at jacob's well and said i need a drink and she got him a drink of water and he explains to her that this wa- if you drink this water you're going to get thirsty again but if you drink of the water of life that i have to give you you'll never thirst again jesus the true thirst quencher is crying out on the cross i thirst he could have had all the water in the world that he wanted But the thirst with the Father had to be satisfied by fulfilling his will and completing that work at Calvary. So this creator of life is desiring a drink. This thirst that is never going to be quenched apart from the relationship through Jesus Christ to the Father, our interceder. And I thank you for those messages that were shared prior to this. But an irony is a state of affairs that shouldn't have worked out like that, the reverse of what it really should be. You have the creator of life-sustaining water, desiring a drink. You have the source of living water, thirsty. Jesus said in John 14 that the water that he gives us, that we will never thirst and will become a wellspring, a fountain of water springing up into us, everlasting life. There's the irony of this thing, the agony. Everyone in here knows what physical thirst is like. Not some, not near to the extremes as described in the scriptures with the rich man and Lazarus. But a physical thirst is real. But I submit to you that a spiritual thirst is worse. And how do you have spiritual thirst? And as I give that much thought, I thought about the thirst that you have prior to your relationship with Christ. We try to fill it with everything but what we need. Until we find Jesus, you're going to remain thirsty. There are people probably in this auditorium that are thirsty spiritually. You're searching for it in church services, you're searching for it in friendships, you're searching for it in vices, you're searching for it in acceptance, you're searching for it in all these places, but you'll never find it without this relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you come to him and believe he is who he said he is and ask him to forgive your sins and be your Lord and Savior, he will satisfy that thirst in your soul. And he will also give you a thirst for this relationship with the Father. So in our depravity, we have this thirst. When there's times when we are in the desert, the times of trials and struggles in our life, whether it's caused by our, self, our wrong choices or whether it's just a temptation and a trial, that will make us thirsty for God. David said in Psalm 42, As a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. And the third aspect that we really be thirsty is, Lord, God forbid that anybody leave this life without Christ. But one of the agonies of hell in the lake of fire will be that thirst. Not just physical, but the thirst because there's the absence of God. And there'll never be any kind of spiritual satisfaction. So you have those things indicated to us on the agony, the extreme pain that comes with the thirst. Lastly is the opportunity, the invitation to eternal life. Revelation 22:17 says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus has a drink for you. He can satisfy your thirst. And as I conclude this, he not only will give you the invitation to eternal life, he gives you the invitation to abundant life. John 7.37 says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are you longing for a drink? Matthew 5.6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Don't leave this auditorium thirsty for God. Jesus can satisfy your thirst.
5: Just to be clear, I am not singing a song. I just want you people to know this. I want you to do me a favor this evening. First of all, what a blessing this is. If you love your Lord and Savior, can I have an amen, please? Amen. amen. All right. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to do me a favor. Take a look up there. That's three words, three little words. It is finished. It is finished. Now, I'll tell you what, there is something, and I would love to say that I gently remind. I would love to say that, that I urge or, or, or strongly try to connect with my church family and, and encourage them to do, but the right word here is nag. I nag constantly with my people, and I tell them, whenever you read Scripture, whether you've read a particular passage or a verse or how many times you have done this, to always reflect, always reflect on what you've read. Because the Word of God never changes, family, never changes, but it is always able to change something within us. Amen? All right. All right. It is finished. Three little words. And if I can do that which God has called me to do tonight, then perhaps you'll be able to leave here feeling differently about those three words as I now do. First of all, if you've paid any attention tonight, there is no doubt in your mind why? Jesus said those words. He was on that cross not because of any sin of His own, not because of anything that He did, but because of you and I. Because of our sin, our sins placed Him upon that cross. It was our sin that He died with on that cross, and for a particular reason. Now, a lot of times as believers, the one thing that we don't do, and sometimes people will maybe think that they can look in the windows, just figuratively speaking, and, and Maybe we look like the people with rose-colored glasses, you know, that life is always easy, it's always good, that we try to convince ourselves that that nothing bad ever happens. And we know as believers that's not the truth. The rain does fall on the just and the unjust. We all go through these tough times. Sometimes in this world we go through our own sufferings, and those we love go through those same sufferings. And the bottom line is that life is not easy. But this is not the only life that there is. This is just part of the passing through. Because we have eternity out there, and we don't preach about it, and we don't talk about it every single time we get together. It's not like the moment we come together. We say, hey, hey, what do you think of heaven? D- did you make your plans for heaven? What's going on for heaven for you? Oh, why? were well, my plans for heaven, I hope that. We don't do that. Although we do talk about it once in a while, and we sing the occasional song. But we know the truth of it, don't we? We know the truth that we get to go to heaven because it is finished. We get to go to heaven because Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. A broken relationship, a broken relationship with our God. You know why? Because just like here and now, man had a better plan. Way back in the garden, man had a better plan, and it didn't work out well for man. The plan that was never plan B? Jesus. What would he do? He would come. He would spend his life among the people, always accessible from the moment he was born until that work would be completed, till it is finished. And something that I would encourage you to remember, and I would encourage you to do this because it is Easter, and I'll tell you, it is never a bad time to share the truth of Jesus with anybody, amen? All right, something that I would encourage you to do, and right now I haven't told you anything new. This is all very familiar, I'm sure, but then again, three little words. What can we learn if we reflect on those words? Well, let me share with you what God laid on my heart, and I pray that you'll hold it and cherish it just as much as I now do. When we read those words from Scripture, and you can find them, John chapter 19, verse 30, I don't have to have a Bible. I know where it's found, and it's probably even on your pamphlets in there. You know where it's at. But when you read them, the next time, remember something. Although we are reading words that were recorded centuries ago, words from the past. If you are a believer and Jesus Christ lives in your heart, those words became a reality to you. And those words are precious to you because you know that you get to go to heaven because Jesus. And the interesting thing is they are not, and I tell you, and this is what God laid on my heart, they are not just words from the past. They are indeed words from the past, perhaps from your past. If you are a saved child of God, praise the Lord. But remember, just as much as they are words from the past, do you know what else they are? (laughs) They are words for tomorrow and for the next day, and as long as God sees fit to have patience to allow this world to continue, my family, because for someone else that doesn't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, these are words for the future. Amen? Amen.
6: Good evening, everyone. It's great great to be here. I didn't know it was overflowing back into the lobby. I love it. Hi, back there in the lobby. (laughs) This is great. Hey, five years ago, a little over five years ago, uh, my good friend and brother, Timothy Metcalf, who spoke earlier, uh, was talking with me, and he had an idea about a multi-church gathering on Good Friday where pastors would speak the seven last words Aren't you glad that, that he followed through with that idea? This is wonderful. Well, I, uh, I want to talk to you about the last word of Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross before he breathed his last. And that is Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One of the things that I want us to see from this passage, one of the things that I want us to leave here tonight with is assurance, assurance, trust, confidence, certainty in what God the Father says. And that's what I believe Jesus Christ displayed from these words. Let's take a minute and pray that God would help us to make the connection in our minds. Father, I pray, we pray, That as we look at this last word tonight that you would build our faith that you would build our trust our confidence our certainty in the fact that what you say is true that you are faithful and I pray Lord that this would minister to people all of us are in different situations all of us are going through different things but I pray that this word tonight would be an anchor for us that would be unchanging. And Father, I pray that I can express this truth in seven minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord told me I have eight. These guys went pretty quickly. So we got an extra minute. I want to I read, uh, before we get into that word, a passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. We know and we've, we've heard and, and we love the fact that Jesus Christ's death accomplished our forgiveness. But his, his death did something else for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, tells us, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving us an example, so that you might follow in his steps, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. He continued entrusting himself to the Father who judges justly. This is a a word about trust. This last verse is is Jesus Christ leaving us an example of trusting the Father that we can take with us from here tonight that I I pray will build our faith. This last word is a quote from the Psalms. In chapter 31, verse 5, the psalmist wrote, Into your hand I commit my spirit. See, the whole time Jesus was on the cross and the whole time he lived in the flesh before the cross, he quoted Scripture. You squeeze Jesus, and Scripture comes out. You pierce Jesus on the cross, and He bleeds Scripture. We see that if you put Jesus in the wilderness and tempt Him, He overcomes those temptations with Scripture. Jesus, while He was suffering and being crucified and tortured on the cross, was preaching Scripture. To say that Jesus trusted the Scriptures would be an understatement. Jesus did trust the Scriptures, but He didn't trust them like some kind of mantra, some kind of words to live by. He trusted them because He made a connection in His mind and heart with the Father. He knew that these were the Father's words to Him. In His flesh, in His humanity, He lived by a trust in His Father. He took the Scriptures in and He lived by them. There was a clear connection in His mind that because of these words... Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because of that psalm, he knew that the Father was faithful. He knew where he was going to be after he took his last breath. Because he trusted the Father. I want us tonight to learn from this that we can have assurance because the Father has told us what's going to happen because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I I used to work as a probation officer, and I had an intern one time named Steve, and Steve, I I had the opportunity to talk about Jesus with him. Steve was not a believer. I tried to convince him. I showed him the gospel message straight out of the scriptures, but Steve's hang-up was that Steve didn't believe the scriptures because over years that... He, he thought, well, men, men probably corrupted these scriptures. And he knew men wrote these scriptures, but he didn't know that the Spirit guided them to write the scriptures. So he thought, well, if they were written by men and maintained by men, human beings for all this time, then they're not dependable. They're not faithful. And so I, I said to Steve, Steve, do you believe in God? And he said, yes, I believe in God. And, he said, and I said, do you believe in a God who... Is powerful that can do whatever he wants and he said yeah I I believe in a God that's powerful and he can do whatever he wants and I said Steve do you believe in a God who would want to preserve his truth for people that he loves throughout these years and he just couldn't make the connection he just couldn't believe that God could do that He, he did believe instead that man could corrupt the scriptures with his own personal testimony. I want to end with a passage from the book of 1 John that I think illustrates this truth. And, and while I read this passage, could the band come up and uh, we'll get ready to end with our last song. But I want to, I believe this passage will make the connection. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 13. I want us to make the connection that Jesus Christ lived his life as an example and died his death as an example of faith, of trust, of assurance, of certainty that what his Father said is true, and we can bank on it. And that applies to us, and we need to follow his example in that. And I think the Scripture will help us to see that. 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. Says this if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God, speaking of God the Father, is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. If you don't believe what this is going to say next, then you're calling God the Father a liar. And to call God the Father a liar is blasphemy and the punishment is eternal damnation in hell. If you do believe what God the Father says in his testimony about the son that I'm going to read here in a a second, then you can know for sure that you have eternal life. Verse 13, next verse. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God the Father loves you so much that he wants you to know exactly how you can know that you have eternal life. I I don't know where all of you stand. Maybe you're not sure. Assurance is something that that we can struggle with. God wants you to leave here sure because of Jesus Christ's perfect life. Because Jesus Christ, eternal God, came here. He became a man so that he could die, so that he could shed his blood to forgive you of your sins. Jesus Christ didn't stay dead. He physically rose from the dead on the third day, to overcome death. And us, through faith, through belief, through trust, we are united with him. And God the Father says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You believe that God the Son did that. What I just said, that you may know. Know means that you are certain. You don't have doubt You are sure you can trust the Father's testimony that you have eternal life. Let's stand and pray and thank him for this. And we will sing to him and we will worship him in one last song. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we acknowledge Jesus Christ as both God and man, as Savior and King, the Messiah, the King who will reign forever because he has risen from the dead. We believe your testimony, Father, about him. And if anyone here doesn't believe that truth, we ask you to please soften their heart during this last song to receive that truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might be saved through faith by your grace. Father, we pray that for those of us who do believe that you would fortify our faith, that you would fortify our faith, that we might be sure and certain that because of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and because of your faithfulness, Father, that we have eternal life. We have eternal life now, and we have eternal life forever. We thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, may he be glorified. Amen.